You're home when your neighbor starts frantically knocking on your front door. She's crying as she tells you that she lost track of time when she got up to answer the phone while giving her 11-month-old son a bath, only to find him face down in the tub when she returned. You immediately begin CPR, starting with rescue breaths. She calls 911. You're listening to 911Cast, the no-nonsense EMS podcast. This episode is brought to you by OneKit, makers of high-quality, professional-grade first aid kits. Get yours today at buyonekit.com. That's B-U-Y-O-N-E-Kit.com. I'm Scott Topiel, and this week, it's all about drowning. You've no doubt heard lots of different terms to describe drowning. Things like near drowning, dry drowning, wet drowning, and even secondary drowning. The World Health Organization defines drowning as the process of experiencing respiratory impairment from submersion or immersion in liquid. There are really just two types, fatal drowning and non-fatal drowning. All of those other terms are just made up, and we should really stop using them. But more about that later. There are about 4,000 fatal drownings in the United States annually. That's more than 10 drowning deaths every single day. And experts believe that non-fatal drownings are about 100 times more common. Fatal drownings most often occur in children under the age of 5, with swimming pools, bathtubs, and liquid-filled containers like those 5-gallon paint buckets being the most common culprits. Many people don't realize that an infant can drown in as little as one or two inches of liquid, so even a shallow bathtub or a kiddie pool with some standing water in it is still a hazard. As kids get older, the general risk of drowning decreases, with the next peak of deaths occurring between the ages of 15 and 25. Older victims are more likely to drown in rivers, lakes, or at beaches, with alcohol believed to play a role in over 50% of cases. Unlike in the movies... Drowning really isn't all that dramatic. In most cases, there's no flailing around or splashing, no screaming for help, just someone that slips silently under the water, often completely unnoticed, even in a pool full of people. When a person drowns, panic starts almost immediately, followed by attempts to hold their breath and some struggle to stay above water. Soon, the reflex urge to breathe overwhelms them and they aspirate liquid into the airway. This liquid stimulates the cough reflex, a last-ditch attempt at keeping the airway clear. If the victim isn't rescued right away, hypoxemia due to lack of oxygen sets in within seconds, followed by loss of consciousness, apnea, and ultimately cardiac arrest. This entire process, from water first entering the mouth to death, usually takes just a few minutes. Over the years, we've been teaching people to focus on providing high-quality chest compressions when performing CPR. But cardiac arrest in drowning is virtually always caused by respiratory compromise, so these are special cases where you really want to prioritize giving rescue breaths as soon as possible, even while the victim is still in the water if you can. Start by giving two rescue breaths. Then, if they don't respond, you can manage the resuscitation in the same way you would any other cardiac arrest, including the use of an AED once they're out of the water. Many of us were also taught to apply a C-collar and take spinal motion restriction or SMR precautions when caring for drowned patients. In reality, C-spine injuries are extremely uncommon in these cases, and providing SMR tends to delay care and interfere with airway management. 
So unless you really suspect a cervical spine injury because there was some other mechanism like a diving accident or associated trauma, there's really no reason to apply C-spine precautions. And if you're not yet convinced, one large study showed that only 0.5% of drowning victims had a C-spine injury, and all of those cases were associated with obvious trauma, such as a motor vehicle collision or diving into shallow water. If the victim is hypothermic, they might have a very weak, slow, or irregular pulse that can be easily mistaken for cardiac arrest if you're not careful. If the patient is cold, it's reasonable to spend more time on the pulse check, as much as a full minute, before starting chest compressions. Hypothermia is also one of those cases where prolonged resuscitation, sometimes several hours long, can still lead to a good outcome. Remember the old adage, they're not dead until they're warm and dead. One thing you don't want to do is waste time trying to remove water from the victim's lungs with positional changes or abdominal thrusts. There's absolutely no benefit to this, and you'll just delay those rescue breaths, which actually do help. Of course, not all drownings are fatal, and most victims are pulled from the water still awake and breathing. Every summer, a news article pops up reporting the death of someone that reportedly experienced a non-fatal drowning several days or even weeks prior. The press irresponsibly calls those delayed or secondary or even dry drownings, terrifying countless parents and camp counselors. Now, it's true that it doesn't take a lot of water to cause harm. As little as 150 milliliters of aspirated water, that's about two-thirds of a cup, is enough to impair gas exchange in an average-sized adult's lungs. In a child, even less can be dangerous. Despite this, there's never been a reported case of a person that was evaluated, found to be without any symptoms, and then died more than eight hours after their drowning event. Completely asymptomatic people simply don't die days or weeks after these types of incidents. And you don't have to take my word for it. In one large study that looked at 41,000 lifeguard rescues, only 0.5% of patients died. And all of those people had significant symptoms within the first few hours of drowning. Secondary drowning isn't only not a real medical term, it's straight up not a thing. So who needs to go to the hospital and who can go back to their fun in the sun? A good rule of thumb is if a person has symptoms that are worse than if they had drank something that went down the wrong pipe, then they should be taken to the ER. In general, patients with mental status changes or loss of consciousness, anyone that needed positive pressure ventilation, supplemental oxygen, rescue breaths or CPR, a patient with abnormal breath sounds or an abnormal respiratory rate, someone with chest pain, shortness of breath, accompanying trauma, is intoxicated, or someone who simply has a persistent cough or doesn't quite feel like they did before, should be transported to the hospital. Responding to a drowning can be chaotic, and it's easy to get tunnel vision and focus solely on the drowning episode. In many cases of so-called secondary drowning, it turns out the main issue was another medical problem altogether. Don't forget that the same medical emergencies a person can experience on dry land can also happen in the water. This includes STEMI, seizure, stroke, and cardiac dysrhythmias, just to name a few. Always consider the possibility of non-drowning-related causes that may have caused the distress that ultimately led to drowning. Missing those can spell disaster. Now, back to our case. EMS quickly arrives and takes over the resuscitation. Since the child is cold and appears hypothermic, medical control advises prolonged CPR with rewarming. 
The medics move the baby into the back of the ambulance where they turn up the heat and cover him with blankets as much as possible. After nearly an hour of CPR, they achieve ROSC and the infant begins to move. He's transported to the hospital where he's admitted to the PICU and ultimately discharged back home. Drowning is an all too common occurrence that affects both young children and adults each year. To provide the best chance of survival with good neurological function, unresponsive victims should receive two rescue breaths as soon as feasible, followed by traditional CPR with chest compressions. Emphasizing ventilations for drowning victims addresses the most common cause of these cardiac arrests, hypoxemia. Most non-fatal drowning victims should be transported to the hospital for at least eight hours of observation, since even small amounts of water can be harmful to the lungs. The overwhelming majority of drownings can be prevented by closely supervising children, avoiding intoxicating substances while in and around water, and by swimming with a partner. That's it for this episode of 911 Cast. If you like what you've heard, please subscribe and review us on Apple Podcasts. Until next time, thanks for listening.